How did you fare? Yeah, we had a power outage, which was weird. First time in the new house. Oh, it was, yeah. It was fine. Yeah, no big deal. But just like in the moment, you're kind of like, what the hell? <laughs> and uh, What is this with the no power? And modern living is that um, you don't need candles because you have cell phones that have flashlights. Oh. You don't need flashlights. That, that you is, don't need like, like a mic. Yeah. This is like more things that society no longer needs. <laughs> As we sit here telling stories till it's quarter after three. The details are so gory, but that's how they're supposed to be. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another thing that society doesn't particularly need. But uh, since when has that stopped me? I'm John Kim Fay, and welcome to episode 30 of Talking at the Diner, the show where I take a fellow musician or creative out to the greasy spoon of their choice, and we find out what makes them tick. My special guest for this milestone episode of the podcast is none other than Jim McGuinn who is an interesting guest for several reasons, not the least of which is that he has seen the music business from more sides than most. He's been a songwriter and musician in many bands, including his latest project, The No Good Crowd. He's also run his own indie label. And most people know Jim from his long career in radio. He's currently the assistant program director at WXPN in Philadelphia, but I met him almost three decades ago, during his tenure as program director at two major modern rock radio stations in Philly, WDRE and Y100, both of which were instrumental in launching my band, The Caulfields, to the next level. Jim has lived in several parts of the country, including St. Louis, Minneapolis, Vermont, uh, you name it. <laughs> uh, and he just returned to Philly last year after 13 years as the program director at The Current in Minneapolis. And over the span of his radio career, Jim has met and befriended countless bands and artists, many of whom are household names. Here's a little taste of the new single from Jim's band, The No Good Crowd. Check out this piece of Some Kind of Gold. To some kind of goal. I was particularly excited to really sit down with Jim because we really share a lot of things in common, including our deep love for the genre we most get associated with as artists, power pop. Jim's got some great stories to tell about all this and more, so let's get right to it, shall we? Here's my conversation with Jim McGuinn on Talking at the Diner. Everything is on the table when we're talking at the diner. How long was it out for? I'm like nine to one. Oh, wow. Maybe. Okay. Hello. Two. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, we some water. We right. some coffee, juice, hot chocolate. Coffee, please. Coffee, coffee and water, please. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, the one of the things that's fun is that they tend to politicize many of their um, <laughs> their items. Their items on the menu. <laughs> okay. Which is kind of fun. You don't see that often. You don't see that at Denny's. Let's just say. That's true. Yeah. Amber alert for orange dummy sausage gravy and eggs. Wow. Yeah. You might have to just get that on principle. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So you're you're filling in today. Yeah. 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 I'm on this week. Uh, 
I've told you this. I've heard you on the air more on XPN than I ever heard you. Yeah. In the back in the day. Totally. Yeah. It's is that. I've been the main fill-in person. Basically. That must be so, fun, though. It's great. You know, yeah. people are like, when you when you regulate on, I'm like, I never. I'm just, I'm just on all the time. <laughs> because everybody. Whenever Dan's out or Mike's yeah. out, and sometimes when Kristen or Bobby are out, and sometimes when Bruce is out, and sometimes when David dies out, and sometimes when the uh, uh, yeah, like the utility the man. Guys. Yeah. Uh, wow. yeah. I'm versatile. Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, this is cool. Yeah, we're like the, the tin cup. Coffee. Going on there? It's fascinating. Huh. Alright, I'm all about cinnamon toast crunch, but on the French toast, I'm not sure about that. Oh, it's actually the actual It's oh. the batter. Cinnamon crunchy crust. Yeah. So I haven't been eating cereal in like decades. Really? And I happened to like be at my son's house recently. Yeah. And his his mom had found this sale at the grocery store yeah. and got him like three different boxes sure. of cereal. And like, okay. All right, I'm gonna have that. And then you. So I just like combined all three. Oh. It was uh, a suicide. Yeah, a suicide a for cereal. Cereal suicide. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, it kind of got me hooked again, which I'm not happy about. But I ended up getting like a box of uh, cinnamon toast crunch graham. Yeah. Which okay. is the com it's like the mashup of cinnamon toast crunch and golden graham. Right. Which makes sense. It's sure. the same same concept, same concept. principle. Yeah. 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 Hello. Hey, great. How are you? Do you know what you want? Uh, you know what? I am gonna get the uh, the amber alert, please. I usually go sweet here, but I think I gotta go with the uh, amber alert for orange dummy as well. And uh, grits, please. Yeah. Thank you. All right. All right. We're on the same page. Cheers. Cheers to you. Yeah. Good to see you. So I feel like I've been spying on you because I read your book. It's weird. It's like, am I stalking Dante, or no, am I just reading uh, what he has shared with the world? I'm sharing. Yeah. You're no, sharing. I've chosen to share. And how is he like that? Really? I love the book. It's Thank you. It's great. It's uh, it was real liberating to be able to share. Yeah. You know, because yeah. I kind of felt like a lot of parts of my life were just so segmented. Yeah. And it's it, it allows me to bring it all together yeah. for anybody who is interested yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. and maybe you know some people just want to just see me in one light yeah. and that's and that's fine yeah. i mean i get that um, but it, it's just it's been very nice for me to have conversations with people who you know our friends who have read it but like really only knew like maybe a part of sure yeah. you know the whole thing and most people are usually like surprised by one thing or another. <laughs> which is, you know, which is the way it goes. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Thanks. Really enjoyable, you know, and. Um, uh, Have you gotten to the end? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, what. The end with what you went through with your, losing your mom also resonated with me because both my parents died last year. Oh, uh, yeah. 22, yeah. summer of 22, they both passed away. So, um, so I think there's a lot of universal things that you go through in that yeah. process, you know. And, yeah. and the circumstances are always different, but, sure. you know. Um, yeah, I, uh, I've definitely talked to some people who've lost yeah. parents yeah. after seeing, after reading that and, you know. It is obviously it's never easy. Yeah. But you know, like if you can kind of share your personal grieving process with other people, I think it's useful, yeah. helpful, yeah. you know. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the way you, you know, the short little anecdotal chapters and stuff. Uh, it was a, it was a yeah, I don't know, know how you came, you know, what it was like for you to conceive of that, to come up to, with the structure for the book. It is very much trial and error, just yeah. in the dark. And, yeah. you know, the funny thing was, is like when I, you know, when I look back on it, I, like, I don't know, like, what made me think that it would be a good idea. I'm going to write a book, yeah. You know, but I, I will say that I did my research 
into I, like I, how to well, do I, it or in I, yourself? Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I mean, I've read like 30 <laughs> memoirs yeah. and yeah. not all musician ones either because yeah. it, it, I knew that I had to kind of come in from a different angle than, you know, Elvis Costello or somebody, you sure. know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, yeah. um, I think those books were like way more informative for yeah. me. Yeah. Because that's like, oh, this person is just a person, and they're they're telling their you know just anecdotal memories yeah. of things, and you know how does that sort of like play into like a bigger arc yeah. or story? Is, is there someone? Was there one in particular, or someone that you felt like this is my here's my north star? Here's what I'm going to aim for, or? Uh, there's another great, book. Yeah, another uh, yeah. memoirist. Yeah. Um, Mary Carr. Was it? Mary Carr. Oh, uh, David Carr's daughter? I don't know. The writer actually. from New York Times? Or? Uh, I mean, she. So she's a a three-time memoirist, which is what it was, I was found really interesting, is that she like split her life into three different books. Yeah, yeah. Which I was like... She must be a very serious writer. <laughs> Strong uh, move. If yeah. it takes like that many books to cover like the whole thing. Yeah. But um, full disclosure, she also wrote a kind of a how-to book uh, on writing memoirs. Well, which so basically three by, times by she's selling me, by selling out, me right? that yeah. one book, yeah. she sold me four books. To Smart. Yeah. <laughs> so that in and of itself was genius. I yeah. Think. Yeah. But. You know, just uh, the the advice on how to uh, write detail into things, mm. and you know, I think one of the first things that like really struck me was like use all your senses. Don't just like write from like a bit like you know, Jim was wearing a yeah. black jacket. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, like try to like bring somebody into like the whole sensory. Yeah experience of whatever it is wearing a black jacket and the morning smelled like there had been a torrential downpour right, the night right, right. before <laughs> yeah, yeah. he looked like a guy whose power had been out for four hours uh that's really interesting yeah so it's pretty cool you know who else did a three-part memoir is um peter hook from new order oh really i was not aware of he that. did he did one and they're big <laughs> they're, they're like door stoppers. Wow. Uh, one book was on Joy Division, one book was on New Order, yeah. and one book was on like the Hacienda and the Manchester right on. Club, well, that makes sense club then. scene. You know? I mean, those and are those are all like very big topics. Big chapters, you know. Yeah. But, uh, wow. I only read the New Order one, but I, I, I really enjoyed it because he's just got like, he's kind of like, I'm going to say what the fuck I want. Right. Kind of a mentality. I, mean, I, think, I think that that's, I think for a lot of musicians, who write those kinds of books it's just yeah. so liberating for them because yeah. they can just say what they have to say and he's been in like a I don't know a 15 year divorce from Bernard Sumner and the, and the other people in New Order so it's oh, like yeah. so, it's full of barbs <laughs> you know caddy barbs yeah that's great so, I had him once on a radio show and um, he was a great just a great story yeah great you know had it all and we share the same birthday oh do you now? which is which is always a good intro to someone right so, yeah yeah when is your birthday February 13th oh it's so, coming up yeah okay I've got uh, a day before Valentine's Day yeah Look at you yeah. <laughs> There should be a song lyric in there, I think. I don't know. I think you better um, write that one. But I've got all the Peters. I've got Peter Gabriel, Peter Hook, Peter Tork. Wow. And then like what other Henry Rollins and Feist. So damn, uh, that's a dinner party waiting to happen, perhaps. <laughs> February 13th dinner. Yeah. yeah. I think you're you're writing this song as we just talk it out here. I don't know. It sounds terrible. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. When's wow. your birthday? Uh, November 21st, so just passed, or it feels like it just passed, it's yeah. been a couple months, but yeah, uh, yeah it was, What yeah. day is JFK? Is that the 22nd? Oh, the JFK death day? Yeah. Yes, I think it's... I was like, you, you just missed. <laughs> I love how that's the first thing that pops into your mind. Well, yeah. when I think of late November, yeah. it's either Thanksgiving or, or a president being or shot in the head. the grassy knoll. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one time when the Caulfields were touring, we drove through Dealey Plaza in the van. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, right. Thank uh, you very sunny much. Sunny side up. 
over, over easy. Yeah, wow. It was weirdly a big thrill for me to like drive through Dealey Plaza in Dallas. Yeah. I had taken a course in college called the Kennedy Assassination. See, there you go. It was like a whole, like the whole semester. But like yeah. the, the weird thing was in retrospect, and you know, like when you're like 20, you're just sort of like accepting everything yeah. people tell you. Yeah. Were there multiple theories ex uh, expounded on in the... Well, so here's the thing. In retrospect, this professor was like a complete shill for the Warren Commission. <laughs> wow. Like he he did no everything he could any... to like dispel any other possibilities nope. other than the single shooter theory. Yeah. And it, it, it's... And I think that just goes to show how differently you can understand and perceive things in retrospect. Because yeah. when I was in school, I was like, oh, well, this authority guy is telling me. So it must be true. So it must be true. But now that you've been a college uh, professor, you know just <laughs> how insane all, that all is. My bullshit. You know? like, yeah. 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 They believed it? The thing I said in class. This is very interesting hot sauce. You think they make this here? They what? You think they make this here? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. They make the ketchup, like they, it's a lot of homemade scratch stuff here. Now, no did, Cisco coming did, by. With <laughs> did you come here like before you moved away? Or? Yeah. Okay. So this, this was like been around a for a while. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so mm. I used to live on. Uh, Ellsworth? I remember like, that, yeah. In, uh, sort of like, right off the Italian market, like 9th and Ellsworth. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was sort of, I don't go out to breakfast much, because I don't know, it's just the one, it's the one meal I can actually make pretty good at home. Mm -hmm. but, but when I do, uh, this, <laughs> this is, is your this spot. Is, this is my favorite spot, yeah. Mm. Although there was a place uh, further in South Philly. Uh, yeah, I want coffee to be cool. I'm trying to remember what it was called. It was. Uh, I'm good, thank you. Uh, a woman ran it, and I just remember that it was like so and so's country kitchen, and the slogan was putting the cunt in country. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, like, All right, that's going to be a place a, that you want to patronize. This is a proprietor that, that I can... That you can get behind. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> but now that I'm back, I'm, I'm not too far away, so, yeah. So you were in Minnesota for how many years? 13. That's yeah. Okay. 13 years. It was a, that's longer than a long I kind time. of thought. Yeah. I mean, and had you had any any connection to that area before just getting hired by um, the current? Or I uh, I like who's doing the replacements. Well, yeah, that's a, a, a kind of because uh, no, that's really. an area that has yeah. like no, I mean an, uh, an unusual amount of like musical history for it being it like, does yeah Minnesota yeah yeah. You know? Um, I grew up outside of Chicago, okay. and I went to school in Champaign, and so, and I played in a band in that time, when okay. those bands were out there, like we opened for the replacement. So you twice. would have played like so we would have First Ave like, and all that? Nah, we weren't big enough to play First Ave, okay. but like, we would have played the smaller, you know, the, whatever the... You know, the Kyber Pass was of, of, right, okay. of, of Minneapolis or Chicago or mm -hmm. Milwaukee or whatever. So, but we had friends in Minnesota, and I remember we, we did play there a couple times. You know, like one time we played a show with Trip uh, uh, Shakespeare. Which was the band yep. that would become semi basically semi-sonic. Yeah. And so we, those guys are like your your friends. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Well now now so definitely. But mm. at the time they were just a cool big band from Minnesota and we had a, a little label that put out a seven inch so they got us this gig where the nice. Cedar Cultural Center, which would be like a, I don't know, like an eight hundred seat space. It was pretty cool. It was a pretty cool gig, right? We're like, That's oh, we're in Minneapolis, you know, we're playing with this band. And um, I was thinking about this because some of your, some of the places in your book, you're talking about the experience of being an open band. You know? Yeah, yeah. And they sound checked for hours. <laughs> 
a long, long time. And, In other um, words, soundcheck was rehearsal. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, we had the, the tiniest of soundchecks, and then we got up there and played or whatever. And we were a scrappy little college radio sounding mm-hmm. 80s, late eighties band. Uh, and then they they played, and I was like, oh, they can sing. <laughs> they have harmonies. They're one of those bands. That's why they soundcheck for two and a half hours. But at, later, when I became friends with uh, Dan Wilson and John mm-hmm. Munson mm-hmm. and Jake from Semisonic, you know, I would I would always love to just remind Dan and John how brutal they were to us as an opening band. <laughs> and they're like, we were just oblivious. We weren't being mean. We just didn't know. Ed, we needed to practice those harmonies. I'm like, yeah, clearly. <laughs> That's great. Uh, yeah, so I didn't. I had some friends in Minnesota, but didn't had never lived there. But I, you know, I have Midwest roots. So, gotcha. Uh, cool. And quickly made a lot of great friends. You know, when I was yeah. there. So, um, I, ha- I have a great friend um, from high school, actually, <laughs> Smellwood from the book. Mm. Um, he was. I don't know, friends with them when they were trip Shakespeare. Like I, oh, yeah. I remember a long, long time ago, you know, he was he was not living in the area, but he called yeah. me and he said, You gotta go see this band at Dobbs. They're called Trip Shakespeare, they're really? friends of mine. Yeah. I wasn't able to go, but then you know, over the years, like you read about semisonic, yeah. and you're like they used to be called Trip Shakespeare, like, oh, and you make the connection. They, and then, uh, uh, yeah, they, yeah, they were on um, A&M, yeah. like a decade before you guys were, yep. or five years before you guys were. They made a record at Paisley Park, which is a great story if you ever get a chance to talk to Dan or John to, to tell about some of what they witnessed at Paisley Park, because oh, Prince, yeah. Prince was working on the Batman soundtrack, and <laughs> no. Kim, Kim was, Basinger was there, and... Hijinks ensued, apparently. Yes, delicious. Thank Thank you. you. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, Well, I had one um, interesting interaction with those guys. So, for years, a um, a friend of uh, ours, when we um, this would have been the John Fay Power Trip slash early Ike era, Mm -hmm. we met this guy actually in Maryland. He came to see us, or he had seen us, incidentally, opening for Matthew Sweet somewhere. Okay. And this started a, like, decades-long friendship where we would play his house, like, every oh, year. Yeah. Like a house concert. Like a, like a house, like a soap bar, but before... Yeah. Yeah. And eventually he moved to Atlanta, and his house concerts started to get more and more ambitious. And okay. one of the times we went down and played, our friend was like... Yeah, I'm gonna get Semisonic to like come out of retirement, and they're gonna come play the house, and you're gonna open for them. So awesome. he had to rent like a like a baby grand piano for them, which our band had to lug into the house. <laughs> oh, the work of the opening band is never done. <laughs> you want to talk about the opening band? So, so apparently. Um, <laughs> Dan Wilson and Munson never learned from the... the, the All right, uh, yeah. so yeah. next time you talk to them... Yeah, I'll be like, uh, remember when John Faye was lugging your but, piano in? But, yeah. what a cool experience to yeah. play a basement with those guys. Yeah. I mean, those guys, they're really good guys. They're you know? great guys. Um, I think Jake's book had yeah. been out by Jake's then. Jake's book is so good. And yeah. so it was really cool to get a chance to chat with him about that. And um, and you both have um, weird experiences with Super Frank in common. <laughs> yes, we And do. I, I once worked for Super Frank. Man, what a character. He's a character. I love eccentric I mean, but characters. But you know what? Of all the people that we met in that world, like he is one of the ones that like really st- stuck with us to the bitter end. Yeah, which yeah, you can't talk shit on the guy. No, I mean, <laughs> Super Rank. Yeah, he's a and he grew up in New York. His parents had like a bus company handling municipal buses for the city of New York. Okay, and then he started investing in different things. And eventually led him to owning radio stations, and he had a station in Augusta and then a station in Springfield. Yes. He played the uh, the butt jam in Augusta, yeah. and um, he was you know he became kind of a player in the Augusta world, whatever that means. 
And at some point, you overheard someone talking about James Brown and saying they yeah. were trying to get publishing money from Warner's for some catalog, not like a famous King Records catalog, but some later James Brown catalog. Mm-hmm. And he was like, let me, let me see what I can do. And he had a guy that was good at, I guess, shaking down. <laughs> he had a guy <laughs> shaking down record companies, I guess. And he came back with a million dollars for James. For Brown. James Brown. And then James Brown was like, "Would you like to be my manager? You're my manager now. And yeah. So anybody who can come up yeah, with a million so then, bucks for yeah, you, yeah, I'm in." So Frank ended up managing James Brown for several years. Yeah, I heard and that. That's and I knew him from the radio side, but. I had a period between uh, between Y100 and XBN, and he was like, come work for me. And so I was like his radio guy that would call radio stations and try and get him to play oh things. God. And I would go up to New York every two weeks, and he paid me like what I thought was sort of like ridiculous money <laughs> to, to, to like talk to him on the phone every couple of weeks, you know, and then do a little bit of work. And I did one tour where I, I helped tour manage a band that came to the States from Amsterdam that he had. But I got to meet James Brown. I got to I got to be in these meetings talking about a new record. I've got I've got demos of James Brown songs from that time. Dude, you've done it all, man. And uh, and Frank was always amazing. Like yeah. when he's on your side, he's amazing. When he's on your yeah, when he's not on your side, he can be challenging. Do you know the origin of why he's called that? I am not sure. I mean, I'm not that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I just know that he prefers to be called Super Frank. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was presented to us like it was like, like do more not, than a preference. Like, yes, you yes. better do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get it. Uh, um, I'm curious, like, what was your entry into the world of radio? Because you were a, in a you were a musician playing in a band. Yeah. Like, was it? Concurrent with that, or was it? Oh, it was. Certain, uh, did you have like a show in school or anything? Or? Yeah, no, it was. It was uh, uh, dual paths, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I um, I remember seeing when I was a little kid. It was like Beatles week on the independent TV station okay. when I was like four, and they were screening, you know, Help and the Hard Day's Night, and Yellow Submarine. And then, also at that time, there were monkeys reruns that would air on like Saturday morning, yeah. somewhere on the you know high you know channel forty five or whatever it was in Chicago. <laughs> and I think I was struck by like, oh, this looks cool. It's like you and your friends, and you live in a house together, and you solve crimes or what you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you play some songs, you right? Know, and, and Davy Jones has twinkles in his eyes and, and things. Yeah. Oh man. That's great. So I, I I was pretty hooked on music right from the start. Yeah. And um, when I got to high school, we had a high school radio station. And so I started working at the high school radio station. I learned that if you were the music director, you might get free records. I worked uh-huh. at a, I worked at a record store in a mall for like four years. I wrote for the paper about entertainment, you know, the school paper. Yeah. And then I started playing in bands. And I had this band called Reaction Formation. That was like my high school into college band. And so that was the mid-late 80s. And we were, we played all over the Midwest. And we Mm -hmm. a couple times went to California on tours and stuff. Uh, At one point we were sort of like, there there was an odd proto-mod scene in Chicago. Really? And we were part of that oh, wow. sort of uh, sort of scene. Um, that's kind of where like Material Issue came out of a little bit. Yeah. Um, in that, in that, right after us, you know. But there was a band called Green who we were friends with who were also another like Green okay. band that you might know. Uh, a band called The Slugs who had a couple records and they were pretty good. <laughs> Great name. Great name. Yeah, they were like the jam. They were like a three-piece yeah. with like a real muscular sound, you know? I remember very vividly, like, there being, like, this feeling of... I guess that Material Issue record came out before, like, Nirvana and all that. That's, right like, before, more like yeah. 89 or 90 or something Well, like they had, like, some independent records, and then the one on the big international pop over yeah. one would have been, like, I think it was early 91. Okay. And so, right when you thought it might happen for them, they got kind of got lost in the grunge shuffle. Yeah, but it was still, like... For like bands like ours at the time, this is free yeah. coffee. This is even uh, you know uh, the B Clinic. Yeah, 
No, we were playing a lot down in like Baltimore, DC, and we, you know, WHFS was like yeah. a thing before like we really had that kind of radio station in Philly. Mm-hmm. And hearing them on there was pretty inspiring at the time. Yeah. You know, like, man, these guys are like, you know, yeah. we felt like some kind of kindred thing going yeah. on, you know? Yeah. And um, loved their album and, you know, so I, I remember like them having a very sort of like a, a very brief but like yeah. substantial impact I mean, on just one's feeling that it was possible. It's possible. Yeah, yeah. that record sold like 200,000 copies. You know? Yeah. Um, uh, they had great, I mean, great B-sides, great artwork, the whole thing, the whole mm-hmm. package was really wonderful. Yeah, because they, they, they looked like they had like like the whole package going on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I mean, uh, tragically, we lost Jim in '95 or '6. Yeah, and um, they only did three albums in their in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, there's a documentary now about them. Oh, really? Right. We had a screening when I was still in Minnesota. There was a screening, and we put like 200 people in the theater. I'm good. Now I'm good. And. Um, it was really powerful. I mean, it's so yeah. tragic. Yeah. And what was interesting is that the documentary was made by somebody who was in their 20s, who wasn't even alive when oh, wow. those records came out, but he became captivated with it and was a budding young filmmaker, and the band was like, all right, you want to try to make a dog? Good luck. And he did. <laughs> Have at it. Yeah. And the, the two bandmates were there at this screening. I did a Q&A on the stage after the screening. And the movie ended, and like... Everybody was crying. Yeah. I mean, it was so, you know, sad and so intense, you know, and we had to go on stage. It was like, we all needed a minute to kind of collect ourselves to be able to talk about it because they hadn't, the band hadn't seen the final cut until that night. So it was, that's heavy. They were like, Holy in, a, crap. in a really, it was a really interesting place. Yeah, so. that's very interesting. Like, that's kind of like the second instance that I've heard of where like an artist has a documentary made about them and they're seeing the final version for the first time. Like, when <laughs> it's screening. Mm-hmm. I recently, um, this is several months back, but uh, David Wasikinen from the Hooters, the drummer. There's a documentary that was made last year about him. Oh, really? Yeah. And, um, you know, I've been playing uh, in in the pocket for about a year and a half, two years now. You know, a few of us uh, who play in that project, like, yeah. went to see this pre- movie premiere at, like, the Gorse. Yeah. <laughs> and, like... So, saw David beforehand like this is so exciting he's like yeah I'm excited to see it and like, he'd not seen it either he haven't seen it <laughs> like no I can only imagine like the, the busyness level of a guy like that you know I mean yeah. I think the Hooters had been like on a big tour and all that so yeah, I was yeah. like yeah just I'll see it when it's, I, when it's I, open I, I trust you oh my god yeah and I'm like that is amazing <laughs> that is wild yeah <laughs> like I don't know that I would be comfortable personally right in a situation like that but it was, yeah. a, it was a very cool you know yeah. like a little 45 minute documentary but yeah, it, was, yeah. it was awesome yeah yeah well this material this one is definitely worth uh, seeking out especially given the kind of music you've played and mm-hmm. I've played and stuff you know yeah. I really you know, I connect with those guys and, and yeah like those guys you know they slept on my floors when I was doing radio in different States mm-hmm. and, and I knew them fairly, you know, fairly well, not yeah. super well. It's been like 20 years since we knew each other, kind of, but but well enough that when you reconnect, you're like, "How you been, man? Well, how'd your life Listen, turn out?" If somebody sleeps on your floor, that's a level. You're friends for life, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. That's cool. So, yeah, so I I, I, I was uh, I had the high school radio station, same thing, college radio, record store. Where'd you go to school? University of Illinois. In, uh, Campaign. Campaign. And then I interned at record labels, worked for IRS in Island. Really? When I was in college. IRS. That's yeah, that was cool. Such an influential label yeah. for young guys totally. in the 80s. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I mean, I got to like uh, work promotion on like REM uh, document, you know. And oh, wow. Took them around to like some radio stations and went backstage at shows and would introduce them to college DJs. And That's stuff amazing. Like that. It was it was cool. Uh, and I thought I'd work in records. 
uh, when I left college, and I couldn't find a job. Mm. So back then, you would make an air check tape, which yeah. would be like a demo tape of your breaks, you know, talking on the radio. I ended up getting a job in Rhode Island, and uh, at a station that was like a rock station that leans towards classic rock. Mm -hmm. So I had to go, and I was like 22 years old, and kind of pretend I knew who you know knew about traffic or somebody you know, some band from the 60s and stuff right. like that so it was a great musical education right. for that Steve Winwood was in that right? yeah, yeah yeah but uh, and you know and I always played in bands on the side yeah you know, I always had like side bands I, I remember being in college and at some point the band I was in was like should we go for it, basically? Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, nah. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> I was Let's like, ah, we're, we're great, but I, I had this vision of uh, there was a there was a video store in Champaign where it was the home for this record label called Parasol Records, who are a great pop rec power pop type label. I mm -hmm. think they're still in, in business, but everybody that worked there was someone that was like. The 40 year old, I've been playing in bands <laughs> and now I'm a clerk at a you video could store. see where that path might head. And I was just like, I don't want to do that. I, I don't, so, I, you know, so I, I kind of decided I'm not going to make a living okay. from music. So there was never a point where you personally was like, I'm going for it in no. that realm. Yeah. You know, I, I, maybe I chickened out, maybe I just was really smart. <laughs> I would argue for the know. latter. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which, you know, I had, and I had that kind of conversation once, believe it or not, with Tommy Stinson. Oh, right on. Maybe about, this is like years and years ago, like 15 years ago. And when he basically said, you probably made the right call, I was like, wait a minute. You're in Guns N' Roses at that time, and you, you were in the replacements, and you're telling me that I, uh, then, then something is wrong with the music business. Because <laughs> you seem to have succeeded. And you're saying that, and he's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, well, he's like, he's like, I don't have health insurance. The appearance I don't have of well, 401k, you know, and the I'm the appearance like, oh, right. of that kind of success can be deceiving. That's for sure. Absolutely, you know. I mean, Which I've learned more and more from getting to know more and more musicians, and also mm -hmm. learning more about the business and how, you know. Yeah, how hard it is to sustain over the long haul, you know. I remember uh, being momentarily discouraged, and not that I would expect like these guys to be like super wealthy, but like there was a point in like I don't know, maybe like the late '80s or early '90s when uh, you know the band X, yeah, Billy Zoom, the guitar player, quit for for a period. Because he was like, I can't live anymore making like thirteen thousand dollars a year. Yeah, I'm like, these guys have had like two albums, like make the yeah. number one, and you know, every poll there is. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We're bastards making thirteen grand. And I'm like, yikes. But as someone who has also made thirteen thousand dollars, you you <laughs> kind of lived it, right? I, yeah. I, you know, there. I've. I think people find a way if they really. Really just want to do it yeah and that's yeah. That, that's kind of like my mentality at this point is like you're gonna have to figure it out because at this point where else am I hireable in the real world yeah you know unless I mean, I don't even know unless. Well, I, I mean, think about you've been, you know, you've been the CEO, the admin, the HR, <laughs> the bookkeeper. I've had the, to have uh, like talks with myself about yeah, my behavior. Exactly. No, you you've had so many roles. I mean, of course, this is the same argument that someone would make that said they would say like someone that's a drug dealer would be a great business person because they've had. <laughs> Look what they've done. They've right, managed right. an empire. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, you've, you've sort of had to do all those tasks. So, yeah, you know, multimedia. But at this writer. point, you know, I don't know if you've gotten to this point, but I'm starting to calculate, and it may sound morbid, I'm starting to calculate, like, how long do I really have left? Yeah. And how do I want to spend that time? Yeah. Do I want to, like, in some figurative way, like, throw in the towel on what I'm trying to do at this point and just 
go for what I think would be a sense of security, right. or do I just want to fucking, you know, ride it out? <laughs> you know? yeah. So I guess well, I'm picking you know, ride it out. Yeah, ride it out. You know, but you, but you've come up with all the like. Uh, all the different like side hustles for revenue streams you know like I'm gonna teach yeah. I'm gonna write I'm gonna collab I'm gonna yeah know. I mean the teaching thing was never a particularly intentional move like I just got offered that yeah like it, I mean, like I, if I actually applied to do that anywhere else they'd be like well where's your credentials for that I mean other than the fact that I did it for 16 years like right I don't have like a degree in yeah. music or a teaching certificate or whatever it is you need. Dude, <laughs> I, I was hired to be an adjunct at Drexel as well. Yeah. I did it for four years mm-hmm. and I remember getting there and I was like, what, what do, what do, do? I do? What do we do? Yeah. <laughs> like, can I get a, someone else's syllabus so I can see what you do? And model. Thank God, that's what happened for me. Off of someone else, and they're like, "Oh, okay." Um, I'm like, "You have, you have no, I have no certificate. I have not, I have nothing." And they're like, "Yeah, go for it." Marcy like, Wagman okay. handed me this like binder, which yeah. was like her course materials. Yeah. And I like looked at it's like it was like this thick. Yeah. I was like, "How do you teach all that in like ten weeks?" Sure. There's no way I'm gonna be able to. I mean, it was this was like in the weeds. Yeah, yeah, shit. yeah, yeah. I was like, I'll take what I can from this, and then yeah. it's just gonna have to be like a whole different approach. Because yeah. I mean, I don't know how you dealt with it. what. What was the subject that you? Were... Uh, well, when I started, it was like uh, history and current issues in radio. Okay. And then I was drafted into that program, that Mad Dragon mm-hmm. you know, program. And then I taught other classes on like digital issues in the burgeoning future music industry. Like it was all kinds of trying to project. You know, I remember like. I I would always give people the, it was a big famous article in Wired Magazine on the long tail. Okay. That the long tail was coming thanks to like the breaking down of uh, brick and mortar retail, right. the advent of like iTunes. Mm-hmm. And, this is long before Spotify. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like 2006 probably, yeah. or something like that. You know, five or six. It's yeah. mid-aughts, you know? But we were already seeing this thing. And I, I, my one phrase that I stuck with was like, I talked about the democracy of technology. Mm-hmm. Like it was opening all these doors for us to, anybody can make a record. Right. Anybody can make a podcast. You're not limited by distribution companies anymore. They're irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Anybody can get on a server that can be heard anywhere. Right. You know, we can create a band right now and call it the Rolling Bones and be right next to the Rolling Stones right. in terms of shelf space. Yeah. You know? And at the same time, everyone is doing it. Yeah. So there's clutter and there's a need to how do you break through the clutter it becomes this whole different issue, you know? Right. And, and that was when you know, before social media. So like radio and MTV and then blogs and stuff were still like, there was still a key role of those like gatekeeper media things, you know? But uh, but that was the moment when, when I was doing that. And I would just, I would just riff on shit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's I remember cool. the first class I taught, I was talking to like all these faces staring at me yeah. and nobody took a note. And then someone said, write something on the chalkboard and see what happens. So I'm like, my and second class, I was like, all right, know. we're going to talk about this thing. And I would write it down and everyone would be like, writing it down. I'm like, oh. Little tips. <laughs> pro tip. Pro tip. <laughs> if adjuncting, put it on, the put it on make them read it and they will write it down. Yeah. Smart. I don't know. Wish I had done that. <laughs> Over but, my you're, but you're teaching songwriting, so that's got to be a whole different. I mean, it was ultimately like I really enjoyed the experience yeah. for most of the time, and I, I think the, the more interactive I was able to make it, like the more successful I think the course was. Yeah. You know, like yeah. like. The times when I sort of, by nature of material, had to like lecture for the most of yeah. the class, that was the most nah. disastrous yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. stuff. But yeah, you know, I, yeah, I, I, uh, 
you know, this was the beginning of people that age not really knowing much about radio. So they mm. they would be like, oh, I, heard, I listened to a radio station last night. I learned this thing. I was like, oh my God, where's the future heading? And that, that was right where the future was heading. But yeah. Uh, but I would make yeah. So we, we would make I would make the students like monitor and analyze radio stations. Mm-hmm. And our end of the year project would be to they have to create their own format. And a couple of them were really good. Cool. There were some really good formats. And I, I've stayed in touch with some of those students. Like you know? what? You remember? Well, the, the one that I love the best, this guy Larry made this format, and it was called The Truth. <laughs> and basically what he was talking about was playing like uh, progressive R&B and like classic sort of classic black music from across genres but like iconic stuff because right commercial urban radio tends to be pretty lowest common denominator yeah. mm-hmm. and very repetitive and his whole thing was like I want a radio station where you go from like Bob Marley to John Coltrane to Lauren Hill it's like the early FM thing applied, applied to, R&B. to R&B and black music. Yeah, and that's cool. Very cool. And I was, cool. Like, I was like, dude, you're onto something. You know? <laughs> Go make that happen. Yeah, yeah. So that's it was awful. good. Yeah. And he ended up going out and having like a label and making records and stuff. So you know, that was cool. Yeah. So as somebody who has sort of like been on like every angle of all of this, like how does that affect your um, your purest creative motivations? Like oh man, like music making? Yeah, oh, music wow. making. Yeah, I sometimes wonder if I know too much. You yeah, know, that's, that's kind of what I'm getting like, at. You start to second guess. Like you know you exactly even, how the sausage is made. Yeah. So before you're even done writing the song, you're like rejecting it or something, right? Yeah. I mean, you, do you go through that having written? I, I, I write very few. It's, it's like yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't, I'm not as prolific as you are, but it. Like, I, I don't know that I. I think like <laughs> mentally, you probably know this about me instinctively just from having us you know being connected all these years but like i think that from a mental space i was kind of like going for it for a period that was longer than was realistic for somebody like me (laughs) and so it was very liberating whenever this happened and i don't know if i can pinpoint a moment when i was like Whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. You let go of like, you know, like, is McGuinn gonna play this? (laughs) You let go of that. Yeah, yeah. It might have actually. I don't know if you remember this, but like I sent you a song. I think when you were at the current called Miss America. Yeah. And it was like, and you wrote back a really nice comment about it, and I was like, I was like, you know, that's kind of all I really wanted. Yeah. I wasn't. I mean, I sent it to you. You know, knowing that, like, the the way things are, you're not just going to, like, put it in heavy or something. Right, right. But just the fact that, you know, like, all right, somebody that I respect digs this. Yeah. And I'm kind of good with that. With everything I do from here on out. Because, like, you know, I think because when the call fields were done, I felt so, like cut off before my time yeah yeah that i was like i'm gonna fucking do something you put your head down and you just put your head down and this this went into like probably like another decade of that mentality yeah yeah um like all the way through like the end of ike and i had this john and britney thing which weirdly like felt like I was get given like another third act or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Underground Garage like really jumped on that stuff. That's cool. You know, we had yeah. like two of our songs became like coolest song in the world and all that stuff. And I was like, huh. yeah. But then that kind of stopped. <laughs> yeah. In like yeah. 2014. But it was like everything I've done since then, I think it's coming from just a place like, well, if I like it, then yeah. cool. If I get a little bit of love here and there, yeah, great. 
but it's not. It's, it, there's a. It's a distinctly different mentality than you know, like the first three Ike records, where I'm still like trying to have meetings with program directors. And, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. But with no budget for promotion at all. Right. You know? So at a certain point, a switch flipped, and I feel just like much freer. And yeah. you know, in my head, like, well, in a perfect world, this is a hit, but. Yeah. It's not a perfect world. <laughs> I think that's a healthy attitude. I'm trying to be healthy. That's I, think that's, <laughs> I think that's smart. Uh, yeah, I, I think for me, I, it's like it's so weird. I think because I've worked in the industry, mm-hmm. it's, and I realize everybody has a day job. Every musician you talk to does something else, unless they're you know yeah. in the elite class, right? Mm-hmm. But everybody does something. Yeah. So everyone has a day job. Yeah. Uh, mine complicates it because I work in the industry and I work in radio, and it gives people people are either suspicious or they're mm-hmm. or they're like you're just getting that because you're the guy in right. the industry. I or imagine whatever. you have so dealt with a lot, lot of that. Of, yeah, there's a yeah. lot of like. I'm, I'm probably trying to validate myself as an artist, whatever that means, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that is different or is self-imposed, I guess. But like you, I like you now, at least, I think maybe that decision I made at the end of college was like, you know what, I'm going to try to enjoy music, yeah. play the music I like, and try to take it as far as I can, but not expect right. it to pay the rent. Yeah. And that... And once you do that, then you can. It's just, you know. it's just you're doing it from a much freer yeah. space. Yeah. And the last time I had a even attempt at, uh, oh maybe this will pay the rent, uh-huh. was when Cordeline was had a little bit of a, yeah. a little bit of an uplift, you know. And it was funny. I think I was like 34 or mm-hmm. something, and my then girlfriend was 30. And her friend Nicole was 26, whose boyfriend was 22, uh-huh. and that boyfriend was Mike Kylie, who was the oh, singer Mike Kiley, in the yeah. band. So I was already aged out, but he was like but the front man. The front man was not. Was not. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, he's incredibly talented. He's a great yeah. singer, yeah. you know, and he's got an interesting vision for songs. And I think I can help shape that vision towards like some of the things that I know from like I'd play a bass line that was ripped off from the kinks in the middle of this (laughs) like from an era that maybe he might not be yeah maybe he's uh, not as aware of that but then he's coming at it with this sort of we were sort of in the strokes killers era you know like so I was like I'm gonna bring this sort of element in that's slightly askew from his and I think it's pretty good yeah and we actually we had a manager for a minute who's now, you know Sharon Osbourne, you know? Yes. He managed Ozzy and managed a whole bunch of rock bands right. over the years. So this was Gloria Butler, Geezer Butler's wife. Nice. Who, <laughs> wow. had, who had managed Gravity Kills, yep. which was a band that, uh, when I was in St. Louis doing radio, was on like a unsigned band comp. And from that unsigned band comp, they had that song Guilty, which became like a hit. I remember them, yeah. And they got a record deal, and she was their manager. So... Fast forward, you know, five years later, I, we were in touch, and I was like, "Oh, I got this band. Check it out!" And she loved it. Yeah, she loved the Cordeline record, the you know, songs, and stuff like that. She's like, "I want to manage you guys." I'm like, "I've never had a manager." Let's. And it wasn't. You know, it was more like just someone to help shop. You know. Yeah, but sure. I was like, "All right, but that's all right, huge. you know what? If 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 something happened, I I quit radio just to try this for a couple of years yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. You know, which yeah, yeah. I wasn't the desperate artist who only could be an artist to live. So maybe that's why I was doomed to fail. But I don't know. But but I was like, that was the last time that I was like, yeah, maybe. You know, and we played some great gigs and we yeah. had some decent records. I and, loved Quarterly. Like, yeah, you know. I so, remember. Uh, didn't we do a gig in Delaware together? I'm pretty sure we I'm played sure at the Logan House or something. We, we played <laughs> yeah. shows at some point. Yeah. I, it was the aughts, so it was. I don't know. Yeah. Was that been Ike? It would have been Ike. Power for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I think that's how I got to know Clip. Is yep. probably from playing shows with with you guys. Yeah. Um, so you know, and once that sort of didn't happen, after that, I've just been like, yeah, oh, whatever. Just you know, I'm just doing, doing this. You know, but when I do it, I want to make it great. I want to be proud of it. Yeah. I want to send it to my friends. Right. You know, and uh, I don't expect. 
I don't expect anything more than a three dollar and forty six cent Spotify check each month. Right. But you know, I the new band is called the No Good Crowd, and mm -hmm. I sent we have a seven inch. I gave one to Peter Jesperson, who was the guy that signed the replacements the, right, yep. and yeah. did A and R, and he was like. I love this. Both songs are amazing. The production is great. I mean, like that to me was like that's that's, that's like I that's said. It. That's what you want to hear. Yeah, I'm like people you respect. Right. Like, yeah. 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 Dude, I'm sort of like you're doing okay, good. Yeah. I, I don't care if it. It's you, not going to make money. You know, right. it's just is. It's going to be what it is. And if my friends like it, then I'm super happy. You know what's interesting is that like out of not out of nowhere, but like. <laughs> I've recently become aware that there seems to be like a little like power pop revival, revival happening in Philly. Yeah. And I'm just Wait, like, I, Hurry is a, you know that band Hurry? No. Oh, you should check I mean, out. I mean, I'm talking, I mean, uh, you know, I'm Tisbury's. a big fan of the Tisbury's. Yeah. Uh, this, this band randomly just like connected with me recently who I've just been listening to their one song on Spotify and I'm like, this is great. They're called Log Flume. Log Flume? Log Flume. Okay. One of the interesting things about like having the Power Pop label put on you. Yeah. Um, and I've in general been okay with it over the years, but yeah. it's also, um, you know, from like the business the, the music business standpoint, yeah, yeah. it's a bit of an albatross oh, also. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember yeah. one time I had a meeting at MMR, and this was like after they were playing like in Philadelphia, and our, the next yeah. Ike record had come out. Yeah. And, and and God bless those guys. Yeah. I mean, like to this day, I think Ike is the only like unsigned band to have that had, they ever like, really played in like for real. Three of our singles in regular yeah. at that yeah. station from yeah. three different albums. Yeah, and I'm like that in and of itself is like victory, a, a, a big, big yeah. victory. Yeah, but I remember like having this meeting with like Bill Weston and Chuck D'Amico. Yeah, and and Chuck pulled me aside and he was like, you know, John, I just want to tell you, I'm a big fan of what you do, but. Your music is what we call around here, like, in no man's land. <laughs> like, it's too poppy yeah. for us to really, like, go Sink hard with it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, and and in those days, like, those records were definitely, like, a little too hard for XPN. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, I think your station is has shifted. Yeah, I think XPN's more open to a lot of just broader. Yeah, and obviously so. with yeah. uh, you know with with the local support you guys are doing, it's like definitely yeah. like you're hearing like a very broad range of stuff, yeah, which is locally. awesome. Yeah. Um, but at that time, you didn't sound like Amos Lee. You weren't going to get on XPN. Right. Yeah. You didn't sound like some heavy alternative band. Right. You weren't going to get on MMR. Exactly. Or, so you know, we were like, okay. Well, I mean, I I certainly appreciated the candor. Yeah. Yeah. No. Because it, it put a, a lot sad, of things in like very clear focus. Power pop is a sad and lonely genre. It's but, a sad and lonely but, genre for but, sad and lonely guys. It is basically. Yeah. I mean, I'd be like. You, look, you ever look at a picture of Elvis Costello in his classic era? That's what all the fans look like. Right. Kind of, you know. It, but they're but the people that love that music really love yeah, it. They're, I mean, that's they're the sort it. of thing. Yeah. It's it's hard to get out of that sound, which which is ironic given that the entire like genesis of the sonic genre is based on the harmonies of the Beach Boys, mm -hmm. the sort of like melodies of the Beatles, and the like, you know, the, it's, it's, it's the instrumentation, the yeah, the hardness of the Who, and maybe the instrumentation of the Birds, you know, yeah. like four of the biggest fans in the music 60s. history yeah. is what that sound is kind of Rooted cooked in. out of, yeah. and yet. Very few times since, well, since, since like 1979. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. It's like when you look at like, and of course, you know, again, like looking back on your life, you're like, well, of course that music was going to like really implant itself in somebody that's yeah. our age because yeah, yeah. we were like 13. Yeah, totally. And and like, yeah. so hearing like the cars, the neck, Cheap Trick, Blondie, all in the same yeah. year. And yeah. they all sort of, you know, they might have had different tags put on 
on them at the time. Yeah, they called it new wave, but, but really, that's it's, what it is. Yeah. It's just melodic. Yeah, pop rock music. Yeah, and that was the music that sounded different to me when I was a kid growing up in Chicago and listening to the radio. And because um, it was different from like Zeppelin and yeah. Kiss and all. Yeah, that and stuff. that was my older brothers or like other people's music. Mm -hmm. This could be my music, right. you know. And right. And then when I was in high school and I started working in radio, it was, it was uh, the jam and it was the Buzzcocks and it was Ramones and Clash and a lot yeah. of the British punk bands from a couple years earlier that I was catching up on. It was yeah. the early 80s and mm -hmm. I was digging back and going to oh, like specials. Oh, 77, the, you know, 78, yeah. Yeah, and all that stuff in the late 70s into the 80s that really was transformative. Agreed. Uh, for me and you, I know as well. I mean, uh, like I laugh when I was reading in your book, and you're like, "This guy hired me to sing like Joe Jackson," and you're like, "I can do that." Right. I can do like, that. Yeah, I can do that too. I can, I can probably try to do that bass sound too. You yeah, know? Like, it's, it's very amazing. You know. Yeah. So yeah, that music is the music that has stuck with me, mm -hmm. and it's, I think it's classic songwriting. You know. So yeah. So now when I've played in bands, and before this band, I, I had a band in Minnesota that was the first time I ever sang. Mm -hmm. I'd never sung. Before. Before. And it was sort of by necessity. Is that like, Saint Small? Yeah, yeah, Saint Small. And as we got, as we learned our craft and got a little bit better, like people would, people would say, "You guys kind of remind me of Elvis Costello," and I'd be like, "Yay!" <laughs> you know, like, that was like a victory, you know? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know how you feel, but I, I, it seems like we're in the same place, which is you, you make the best art you can. Mm -hmm. You want to share it. Yeah. You don't. You don't not wanna. You don't wanna. Uh, you know, be like Van Gogh in the in your attic, cutting <laughs> off your own ear. You know, right. like you, yeah. you want the world to hear it, but you're realistic about. Yeah, I like, mean, I still, how far it's gonna go. I still believe for myself. Like, I'm just gonna like do what I call like my due diligence. Yeah. Like I'm not just gonna like put it out without like telling people about it. Yeah. I'm gonna do everything that I would normally do, but without. The expectation that anything specific is gonna, yeah, come of it from a either like a monetary or business end of thing. Yeah, you know, I've also learned never to say never about anything. I mean, because you're, you, you know, you open for Bon Jovi, you know. Yeah, thank you. You know, five years. I'm good. Thank yeah. you so much. Five years after you were off a major label, so, right? You know, I, right. So you just never know. So you and you, yeah, you do. Know, you never know. Well, the joke, the joke in my family is that my my wife always just says, and I'm always like, ah, oh, it'd be great if we didn't have to work. And she just goes, write that hit song. She always says that. <laughs> just write and, that. And hit I'm song. like, yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> That's why I was up till two in the morning last you night know, mixing vocals. There you, know? you go. Yeah. I mean, or. The other thing might be your hit song might already just be sitting there and may have been out for like 20 years and then somebody yeah. in a position to amplify it just hears it and puts and it, it in. reacts, you yeah. know. Stranger Things season 12. Stranger Things season 12. <laughs> Big thanks to my friend Jim McGuinn for getting together for that fun conversation. Uh, Jim was kind enough to do a recent author event with me at the Barnes & Noble in Philadelphia. He was my, um, what they call, conversation partner. And it was truly a fantastic night. And I, I want to really express my appreciation for that. So be sure to check out Jim's band, The No Good Crowd. They're on all the major streaming services. And you can also pick up their 7-inch vinyl single from their Bandcamp page at thenogoodcrowd.com. Bandcamp.com. So before I leave you, I want to say thank you to all of my Patreon supporters who make this show possible. These episodes all start out on Patreon before they go public, and if you enjoy the show and would like to become a member of my community there, please visit patreon.com slash John Kim Fay. There's a lot more than just podcasts on there. I have all kinds of cool stuff, including exclusive sneak peeks on upcoming releases, behind-the-scenes content, and much, much more. And to celebrate this milestone of hitting 30 episodes of Talking at the Diner, I'd like to share the complete mastered version of this show's theme song, if you will. 
I've decided not to include it on my upcoming full length and make it sort of a more special standalone single. And if you've listened to the show before, you've heard snippets of this tune, but I'd like to share the whole thing to close us out. So thank you once again for listening. I'm John Kim Fay, and I'll catch you next time on Talking at the Diner. As we sit here telling stories Till it's quarter after three The details are so gory But that's how they're supposed to be And this waiter must be wondering If we're ever gonna leave cup of coffee and I'll refill my iced tea Tell them you're still working on your bacon, mac and cheese Spin the yarn Tell the tale Nothing could be finer And everything is on the table When we're talking at the And we wonder if we matter And we shut up and reflect And we'd love to take a knee To those who'd make us genuflect And we ain't just whistling Dixie Man We're coming for your neck Order one more glass of water I'll excuse myself to When we're talking at the diner And I see Sentences, Cause great minds take the hint And we jump to our conclusions By the time they bring the mint And this check is getting soggy With our maple fingerprints Spin the yarn, tell the tale Nothing could be finer on the table when we're talking at the diner